thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. Stacy Keach has long been one of our finest actors. From the Shakespearean characters he's brought to life on the stage, to TV roles like the indelible Mike Hammer and the current sitcom Man with a Plan, to the staggering film work he's provided under the direction of giants like John Huston and Robert Altman. We discuss all of this, including his films End of the Road, Fat City, The New Centurions, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, and Road Games. This interview was conducted for our Movie Geek Yearbook series. Visit moviegeekyearbook.com for more details. I got over my fear of the camera a little bit, but it it didn't it didn't last long. I was very kind of camera shy, uh, being a stage actor in the beginning of my career, and it wasn't until I did End of the Road and Gordon Willis, a great cameraman, took me aside and said, "I'm you need to treat the camera as a person. Come over here, and I want you to meet uh, Mitch." He called him the Mitchell, <laughs> Mitchell camera. And, you know, and he started talking to the camera. And, and he, he, he said, and, and come over here, I want you to meet Ari. This is the Aeroflex, the smaller camera. And he, he carried on a conversation. He said, Ari, this is Stacy Keach, and he's a little nervous in front of you, but uh, you, you'll make him feel comfortable, I'm sure. And, and every day I would come in, to the, on the set, and I would start having a little conversation with uh, the camera. People thought I was crazy. I mean, the crew, you know, some of the crew, <laughs> they knew that what was going on because they knew Gordon. But it actually, it allowed me to overcome my, uh, my fear of uh, working in front of a camera. When it comes to working in front of a camera, I'm wondering how aware you are of the camera placement uh, is this a medium shot, a close-up, so, so you can modulate your performance? Do you concern yourself with that technical side of it? I've gone through that because I, I've also directed, and I, I I've gone through that process. Uh, but ultimately, it doesn't mean a damn thing. What really is important is just getting to the truth of the moment, whether it's a close-up or a, or a medium shot or a, or a master. It's getting to the truth of the moment and expressing that. You know, I mean, the, the old adage of save it for the close-up, uh, I think it still, it's, it, it, it still works. If you've got a very emotional scene and you're, you know you're in a medium shot and you're doing off-camera for the other actor, uh, you don't have to really let, let all, you know, don't let it loose. It's good to hold back a little bit. But I think other than that, I would say that, again, the adage of tell the truth no matter what size the, the lens is. Yeah. You know, this might seem like a an odd question, but, um, I mean, with your extensive stage and screen work, I'm curious, actors talk about reaching kind of like a, a moment of transcendence where it, it, it feels like they've hit a moment that feels so truthful and, and, and present, immediate to them, that they almost feel like they're levitating. Everything else kind of disappears around them. Yeah. And I would think that the stage would be more conducive to, to creating those moments. But have I you think, ever experienced yeah. that in film? Yes, I have. But I think but 
for those actors who have expressed that, I, I think that the stage definitely, the theater definitely provides you with more opportunities to reach those levels of transcendence because of the nature of the roles, particularly if you're a classical actor, as I am, and you do Shakespeare, you do these big, enormous roles that if you don't transcend at some point, then obviously, you know, the audience is going to descend. <laughs> They're not going to like it. <laughs> yeah. How, there are, are moments in film, though, that, that uh, I'm just, in my career, one of the, uh, I did a movie called The Ninth Configuration, which was also titled Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane, um, with William Peter Blatty directing, producing, and writing. And in that movie, I really, I did have moments of transcendence, uh, particularly in the, it was a, a bar scene where the, uh, the, the character that I played, Killer Kane, um, comes off the floor in a bar fight and just wreaks havoc on the place. And, and his, his, the enemy is fighting. Uh, and I, I, I did experience a kind of, uh, yeah, transcendent moment there. Yeah. Uh, this is probably the most difficult question I'm going to ask in this interview. How would you describe end of the road? <laughs> uh, well, it's hard to do that in a word, that's for sure. But I, um, end of the road was, uh, it was it was a miscalculated film and, and way ahead of its time. Uh, John Barth wrote something that was very intense and Terry Southern transformed it, transformed it into a, a movie script that Aramavakian, the director, embraced and but he wanted to do something very sort of avant-garde and uh, he wanted to use multiple images uh, in, in the scenes with James L. Jones as the psychiatrist, Jacob Horner. Those, uh, those scenes uh, and the backdrops of those scenes uh, was really way ahead of its time. We thought at the time that the film was going to be controversial but we didn't we didn't have any idea that it was going to be rated x by virtue of the fact that the abortion scene was just it was too much for people to take and people were left the theaters you know getting sick to their stomachs uh it was not a, it was it was it was very difficult to take but as as an actor it was a wonderful experience i loved working with with James Earl Jones and Harris Eulin and Dorothy Tristan and uh, other actors in the cast, it was it was it was my first really my first major serious role. Um, I had just done the traveling executioning, uh, uh, which was a was sort of a, a romantic Burt Lancaster type of. Um, Character and that I loved, and Jonas Candide. But it was it was more it was lighter. It was it wasn't really it wasn't serious. End of the Road was it was a literary masterpiece, and it, I don't know that people feel comfortable saying that it translated well to the screen. I I don't know that it uh, I don't know that it did. But I loved it. I loved doing the movie. I really enjoyed doing it. 
So what was it about End of the Road? What, what spoke to you? Of, what was true about that movie to the times that you were living in? Well, I think the, the inability to confront what, your environment, what was going on around you, going into a catatonic state, almost being numb to the events of the world, what was going on around you. I think that that was very much a part of the uh, of that era. <laughs> and funnily enough, we've, we've, I think we've returned to that era. Again. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you about, it. in terms of the, the outside-of-the-box thinking of End of the Road, uh, it's also a good matchup with something like Brewster McCloud, in which you also appeared, because there were these little gems of oddities, like odd yeah. little movies. That, yeah. that you know, it they were. It's just a beautiful time for filmmaking. Eccentricity was a very respectable thing in those days. Unpredictability, quirkiness. Uh, I think Bob Robert Altman certainly, as a director, personified those uh, those things. And he, he as, a, as a director, was a wonderful to work with in the sense that he he really depended on his actors to provide the material for the, for the script. We, we improvised almost every scene based on a very uh, concrete and very objective um, circumstance, scenario that he would, that Bob Altman would, he would, he would explain the situation. And then he would say, just get in there and improvise, you know? And sometimes it was very intimidating. Because if you couldn't come up with something, you were kind of stuck. Um, but it was ultimately exhilarating. Yeah. You know, Altman is one of my all-time favorite directors. And, and I, yeah. I always think the filmmakers that I wish were still making films today, for yeah. today, are Altman and Hal Ashby. I wish the oh, two of yeah. them were still oh, making Hal, Hal Ashby. Oh, I loved Hal Ashby. I never got a chance to work with him. But... We spent a lot of time together because there was a period of time in my life when I, for about two seconds, was going to play McMurphy in um, over the one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm. Yeah, when he Hal Ashby had been given the assignment to write the script and uh, or to help uh, Ken Kesey write. No, Ken Kesey to oversee the writing of the script, and Ken Kesey took the play and and just completely he he expanded it in 14 many different directions in the studio got very upset and Hal Ashby loved it so they fired Hal Ashby and my my chan my chances of ever playing that part were diminished and gone hmm. evaporated you know I read I read your beautiful autobiography uh, and I just I I enjoyed it immensely and there was there was something you wrote about another kind of missed opportunity that that predated Brewster McCloud which was MASH your first yes. opportunity with Altman could right. come with MASH that's right that's exactly right yes oh you know that story then yeah oh well, yeah yeah but it was just it was one anti-war film too many so early in your <laughs> career uh, I don't know about that well but it was you know, the opportunity to play Buffalo Bill uh, was, it was before me. So I didn't, after after my experience on Catch-22, 
Mm. Well, mm-hmm. I was you know, I was on that movie for three days, and then Mike Nichols said, "Well, finally, you're you're, you're not right for the part," and that did put in a wedge in my desire to be in any more war movies. So when Bob Altman called me and said it's a war, another war movie, I said, "Oh no, no, I'm I, I'm going to go play Buffalo Bill." Mm. One of the great collaborations early on in your career was, of course, with Sean Houston. Mm. And I, you know, Robert Forrester passed yeah. the other, just the other day. So I, I went and re-listened yeah. to my conversation with him. And yeah. he said that the best advice he ever received was from uh, Houston on how to act in front of the camera. He just, he made him look through the camera lens and said, see those frame lines there? He said, Look in the center and ask yourself what needs to be there. <laughs> so I'm wondering, what did you glean from from being in his presence? Oh my goodness, he was uh, well. He was larger than life, and he was uh, he was like a, a great coach and a great a great father figure in in many ways, and a great teacher. With me. He always he said he said he said Stacy I only have two directions a little more and a little less and that was that was it I mean he uh, he said the actor has to come in with the you know with the goods the actor has to provide the material the emotion the direction of of the uh, of the character in the scene and. He said, "There's nothing I can do about it. I'm on the outside." And I, yeah, I had the great pleasure of acting with him in a, in a terrible film called the. Well, it had many titles. The Greatest Battle, I think, was the last title film with Henry Fonda, John Huston, myself, Sam, Samantha Edgar, Helmut Berger, and and John was playing an Irish industrialist. Henry Fonda was playing a German, I mean, a, a, an American general, and I was playing a German Nazi, sort of a good Nazi, in love with Samantha Egger, um, an Austrian actress. And the opening scene, we're all sitting around a table discussing why Adolf Hitler declined to shake hands with Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics. Was an Italian and spoke not a word of English, and I was concerned about my accent. I didn't, you know, and I'd worked with John as a director on two films, um, Fat City and Judge Roy Bean, and here I am acting with him, and I'm saying, and I'm asking him at the dinner table, uh, you know, John, how's my accent? Is it too much? He said, Oh no, no, no! Don't talk to me about. It. I'm not giving you any directions. You know, I'm acting here too. You know, I'm not asking you about my accent. <laughs> So, I I mean it was oh what an experience he was he was one of the great influences in my life and uh, I miss him never again yeah Fat City Fat City is such a remarkable film but I'm curious what it was like to exist in that in the tone of that film for as long as it took to shoot it. I'm sure. I loved it. I, I enjoyed did. it. Okay. Well, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I, 
I was in the best shape of my life during that period because I had to train every day. And I was working out with Jose Torres, who was a light heavyweight contender. He was a great, great guy. And he, he taught me a lot. And I learned, you know, I felt in, I was in, in the best physical shape of my during that joint. And, of course, working with wonderful actors like Jeff Bridges and Susan Terrell. And uh, it was... Oh, your, your scenes with Susan Terrell, uh, the, 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 you have a couple of just two-hander scenes in there that are just flawless. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love working with And Conrad Hall, not mm. that film, and got in trouble with Ray Stark because Ray Stark thought the scenes in the bar were too dark. Wanted to reshoot them, and Connie said, "No, no, I've, they've got to be dark like that." So when they walk outside, that, that white light hits you. It's like that feeling you get when you are in a dark space and you come out into the glaring sun. He really wanted, it. and he and John defended and supported him, and those scenes are just the way they were shot. When you're yeah. doing, when when you're tackling a character like Tully in Fat City, yeah, I'm wondering if. I mean, I know you do your preparation, and I, I, I know you have to absorb that and then kind of let it go and feel free to create in the moment. Yes. But is there usually uh, a, a, a word or a single idea that you can stumble upon that unlocks a character like Tully for you? Uh, I don't know about a single word. I know that... One of my greatest disappointments with that city was the fact that we shot scenes that were very much a part of the fabric of that story, with Leonard Gardner's story. For example, when Tully was on top, when he was a king, when he was the champ, when he was, you know, and, and his wife at the time. We shot a wonderful scene where he was receiving the kudos and, you know, it, it, he was invited ringside to take a bow in front of the crowd. The great scene. And also at the end of the movie, the descent into oblivion was it was not just uh, getting coming back to his apartment and finding the Oman, Susan Terrell, living with Curtis Cox, uh, a wonderful black middleweight. He then, in scenes we shot, went into an alleyway and almost got knifed, ended up sleeping in an incinerator. Mm. And all of those scenes were cut. And John was really upset. And Ray said, well, the studio wanted to do it, that Columbia, that Columbia wanted to, it was too depressing. It was too too much of a downer. I said, "Well, good Lord, this is a downer." I mean, the thing is, you, if you don't really hit bottom, you don't. Have, you don't, you uh, the feeling gets abbreviated. The feelings of of compassion uh, and empathy for these characters was not as great as it could have been had those scenes been maintained. I think my my feeling and John's feeling. No, I think so. I think so too. It's it's surprising to me how. The, the great John Houston, uh-huh. that the studio would dare cut anything that he wanted left in. <laughs> I know. It was a shocker. Well, I, I can tell you a funny story. Well, 
ironic story. With the Cannes Film Festival, I'm with John Houston having dinner, and Stanley Schneiderman. I'm just trying to remember the name of who was running Columbia at the time. Anyway, whoever it was came over to to me, and on my John's sitting on my left, but he came to my right ear, and he just, just he said, "Stacy, I want to just tell you how how wonderful you are." In the, we have great we have great hopes and expectations for the film. We just think you're you're great and it's going to be a wonderful day. I said, well, much of the credit goes to Mr. Houston, and he said, oh no 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 no, I'm not. We're not talking about that city. So what? And we're talking about the new Centurions, which happened to be released at the same time as that mm. city. Mm. And thank God John didn't hear. I mean, it was just. But I mean, you know, uh, well, it's our business. It's a tough, it's a cruel business. It's cruel. It's yeah. wonderful and exhilarating, but it can also be brutal. That city's an interesting, interesting movie, also, and it, it has in common something with a few movies during that period, where it, it feels like um, the characters. I always kind of try to imagine how they lived on beyond the life of the movie. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if you ever thought about what would become of someone like Tully? I mean, would he overcome his self-defeating obstacles? Would he ever be able to do that? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I think, was, I think the bitterness was, was pretty much there. It was, you know, yeah, he hurt too much, I think. No, I don't think he would have ever found his way back into the spotlight. Yeah. No. But it's it's a great, great character study. Um, But it's interesting (laughs) that you say that they said that uh, Fat City was such a downer because uh, Houston does a 180 and he does this kind of rambunctious, tall tale movie with the life of types of Judge Roy Bean. And he gives you this, this one scene character that is just it's almost, he almost looks like a Kabuki character. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bad Bob. I'm one of my faves. Yeah. Um, I still yeah. remember the morning we shot that. The ride into town. You know, I wanted, because John said, yeah, I wanted to be an albino. He's got to be an albino. And so I wanted to do everything albinos do. I did all this research and they red eyes. So I, I had these red contact lenses made. Well, we're riding into town at dawn, and the the wind is up, and the sand and the dust is blowing like hell. I mean, I, I can't see. And my eyes are red without contact lenses. I don't need the contact lenses. And, and when, we got, when we, we got into the body of the shooting, in the main part of the shooting, Paul Newman, God love him, came over and he said, Stacy, he said, you know, I'm very concerned about this scene. I said, why? He said, well, I don't usually shoot people in the back. <laughs> you know, I think that's the character. And he was, he was very self-conscious about that. He thought he didn't know that people would accept him as a character actor even because he was such a leading man for so many years. Uh, it was a great experience. Great experience. Great and, but, meanwhile, I mean, Paul Newman excelled at playing those those uh well rambunctious 
characters, that they, especially hmm. later on in his career. He, I oh, think he even talked to. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The New Centurions. You mentioned it, um, and I love that movie as well. And I'm curious about what kind of preparation you put into it. Did you did you spend a lot of time with parole uh, or patrol officers in that? We were we were obligated to by Joe Wambau. He said, "I'm not going to make the movie unless the actors go to the police academy for two weeks as part of the research." So we literally. I mean, we became uh, rookies. We were cops. We went through the training. It was rigorous. Let me tell you, it was something. But it was it gave us a, a, a you know a great appreciation. See, I don't think that actors um, do that today as much as we did in those days. That kind of research. I mean, actors would take the initiative themselves to do those those, those things. You know, but I don't think it, it, it's it's not part of them. Yeah, it's not, not encouraged. Of, huh? It's not encouraged like it used to be. I, well, yeah, it's not, and it's not mandated. I mean, you know, our movie schedules now—they're like twenty-eight days. You're gonna make a movie, you know, and and um, uh, unless it's a big Marvel action movie, uh, and the studio and the money, the people are putting—you know—they don't. They don't see the need, or they don't want to spend the extra money for that kind of research. Mm. So, when you uh, do that, when you do that kind of research, like with the New Centurions, um, yeah. how does it in, how does it ultimately inform your your performance? Well, it, it, you know, it just seeps in. It's like osmosis, just by virtue of that. And we had to go out in the patrol cars at night. And go into Watts and go into these areas where the hatred, the look in people's eyes, you just experience, you know, the antipathy that cops have to go through all the time. Yeah. You know, particularly in that, that during those days. I mean, that, this was this was before Rodney King, so you know, but it was still bad. It was still not, you know, cops were still feared rather than respected and. You know, they were feared, particularly in those parts of the world. I remember one time we had going to a, an apartment in a really bad part of town and found a dead body. This character, his head was wrapped in a bedpost, or in a wire, in a, in a wrought iron bedpost. He was sticking, oh, it was just awful. And the, and the cops, had to reach, you know, undo his body. Uh, and I thought to myself, wow. I had a lot of, my, my, my respect for what policemen have to go through went, you know, sky high. That was then. Today, that attitude towards police has changed. I mean, like, even today, this, this terrible situation in, in Texas with this cop killing this woman, just all, Mm. Uh, well, no, it's a different world we live in. Yeah, police, uh, you know, police brutality was not an issue in the, during the New Centurions. When you play a when you play uh, someone of a certain occupation like that, and you and you become close to the to the representatives of that occupation that you're researching with, right? Um, 
you know, Louis Gossett Jr. told me that he found a great, uh, 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 he, he felt obligated uh, to to do justice to his military characters because yeah. he had great reverence for them and he wanted to do honor by them. And do, so, do you feel a similar yeah. kind of yeah duty? Yeah, absolutely. No, no, you know, it's it's your responsibility. I often get asked about playing bad guys. I think it's very dangerous for for actors to make value judgments of the characters that they're playing. In other words, you say. You know, to, to pass moral, you know, de- you know, judgment on the character, like Iago, for example, one of the most evil human beings in, you know, of all time. And there's not a single redeeming value in his character. Nothing. He's a total sociopath. And and yet, he's one of the most fascinating, interesting characters. I've never played him. I wanted. I, 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 one of my great regrets that I never got a chance to play. For playing the character, you have to play the character fully. And in, you in, in know, even if he's a, a serial rapist, you know, the question is, how do you make a serial rapist? You know, does terrible things to children. Let's say, you know, how do you make him interesting or? How do you? Let's take the killer inside me, for instance, which I think is is a good example of that. How do you make that character recognizably human? (laughs) That's a wonderful question, and that it's a wonderful character. His history with his mother, witnessing his mother having a having an affair with this man and getting beaten by her. In other words, his, his twisted mind was not necessarily, it, it was the product of something in his past. And if an audience understands that, if they understand where a person is, what the motive is, or what the lack of motive is, uh, it's, about, it's about understanding. It's about, you know, if you understand it, then you, you can feel you can't, I don't think you can feel for something unless you understand it emotionally. I just had one more question about the new Centurions, and that was working alongside George C. Scott, who is one of the most volcanic presences in, in movie history, I think. Oh, what was that experience like for you? Oh, it's fantastic. It was just great. I learned so much from him, particularly in my... You know, and he was a, a. This was very early on. It was, it was about the time that I was just beginning to overcome my self-consciousness in front of the camera, and he was the one that really pushed me over the line completely, right? Because he 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 didn't apologize for you know big emotions. He didn't he didn't he just expressed them fully and truthfully. Directors who came along and said, "Oh no, it's much too big for the camera." That was you know. That got people, it gets you thinking in the wrong directions. You become very self-conscious. It happened to me. I certainly did. I went through a whole period after I went to to see the rushes of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which was my first film. And I hated looking at myself. I thought, oh, I'm so big, it's terrible, I can't. So for, for you know, so I started doing nothing in front of, you know, I mean, not expressing any kind of, not over, you know, because I, I didn't want to see myself overacting. Well, it was, it was wrong. It was wrong. That was just as bad as overacting. 
thunder actor. Or, I don't know. <laughs> so just forget about it and play the scene. That took me a while to get to that point. It took me a while. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about the long riders uh, because yeah. this is something that you, you and your, your brother, I believe developed. Right. Um, and then you handed it to Walter Hill to direct. And I'm, I'm curious, yeah. it, it, it must be, feel so close to you and your brother. Yes. Was it difficult to have it be directed by someone else without feeling like getting involved in the actual structure of it, the direction of it? Well, in some, yes, to a certain extent it was, but Walter, we had great love and respect for Walter because of his experience with, I mean, particularly his, his relationship with Sam Peckinpah. Mm. Yeah. He seemed to be the right guy for that movie. And He really uh, was, yeah. He, he really was. Uh, yeah, it was a terrific experience with him. He made my brother and I, he embraced us and he protected, you know, our ideas. In, the, in our original script, we wanted to take the last moment when Jesse's hanging a picture on the wall and and four boys get to drop on him. That at that moment, Frank would come in and have the drop on the four boys, and they made a deal that they would go off and Jesse would 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 go off to live in obscurity, and the four boys could take credit for killing Jesse James, and they would they get another body and stick it in there. It was an you know it was it was a, a novel idea. But the idea of brothers playing brothers, mm. that was, you know, that was, when Walter very wise said, it would be too much to take the story in that direction. But even though my brother and I still, to this day, we would, would love to see a sequel with that concept. And, you know, and, that, cause, and Jesse would go off to live in obscurity for a while. and and. Uh, Frank would go to jail with Cole Younger. Then they'd come out and they would actually ride together in Teddy Roosevelt's Wild West show. Mm. Still, that must, that must have been a, a remarkable set because everyone is surrounded by family. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was. Oh, it was a great set. It was great. What, what, what was what was the impetus for for you and your brother uh, writing that? Well, what happened? We were doing uh, about oh, eight or nine years prior to that. First thing my brother ever did was we did the Wright Brothers. It was a film for television for PBS. And it was called Orville and Wilbur, and we did the Wright Brothers. And we just as a joke after we had a good time doing working together. It was the first time we'd worked together. So, well, we've done the right brothers. Now, let's, what do we do? Let's do the wrong brothers. And it was just like a pun on the, you know. But we started thinking about it. So, wait a minute. Maybe what about the, the James Younger guys? So, that was the beginning of it. It started as a as a theatrical piece, a musical, actually a, a stage musical. We actually did it down at the Bowery Lane. It was called The Bandit Kings. And we then came out to Hollywood and and started writing a script and submitted it to all everybody. In fact, George Way Hill actually saw it at one hmm. point. He had, I was living in Malibu and he 
he uh, he lived very close by. Uh, but he didn't like the idea of brothers playing brothers. He thought that was, he said, you don't need to do that. So, but we, we were committed to that concept. We thought that was really the way. To I, do that. I, I think it really lends an authenticity to to the film and yeah. to those relationships. And it, it gives, it's like something for an audience to savor uh, as yeah. well. I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I, I just have a, a couple more questions for you and, and one more movie I want to ask you about, okay. uh, which is Road Games, which is a smashingly effective thriller, I think. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Thank you. I'm so glad you like it. One of my favorite films, too. I mean, I love working with Jamie Lee and Richard Franklin. What an interesting director he was. He knew every single frame of every single Alfred Hitchcock movie. Mm. He would sit down at lunch, he would talk about, and he went to SC Film School, and, but he was a, he was a total rich, uh, Albert Hitchcock fanatic. And his movies and, uh, reflected that, I mean, Road Games has a touch of that feeling, I think, you know, of a Hitchcockian kind of thriller. Absolutely, yeah. Did you travel, I mean, did, did, did you really travel a great, Distance through the Australian. Uh, we went right. That movie? We yes, we went. We traveled right across the Nullarbor Plain. Nullarbor, mm. no trees. And oh my God, what an experience! She was living in in uh, gas station motels, salt water <laughs> salt water showers. Yeah. I just acting is such a remarkable life because you, in your career, you've lived a hundred lives. <laughs> for sure. Oh, I, I, I really have. I've been blessed. I, it's hard for me to keep up with myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask about some of, some of the stage work as well. Uh, two two uh, topics in particular. When you're assuming a, a Shakespeare a Shakespearean role. Yeah. Uh, many of these roles have been done by some of the most legendary acting yeah. talents throughout history. I mean, yeah. there's there's a great legacy of great Shakespearean performances. Right. Do you feel, is that daunting? Yes, it is. It is daunting and also it, it, it's challenging and it, 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 it makes you, well... You want you to be. You want to be a part of that legacy. I mean, I did. I wanted to be a part of that. My hero was Lawrence Olivier. He was my god when I was a young actor. Uh, he played so many wonderful Shakespearean roles that many other wonderful British, particularly actors, played. That you began to see that there, there was no definitive performance. It's, 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 what's definitive is how, it's what you bring, what you bring to, to the role that nobody else has. What makes your Hamlet different than, you know, or your Lear or your Richard III different than others? You know, what's unique about, you know, what gives you the right to be part of this legacy? Sure. <laughs> these questions. And they, and it provides a, a challenge, 
but it's also an inspiration to to find your way through the labyrinth of possibilities of choices, alternative choices that you can make when you're doing to be or not to be or blow winds and crack your cheeks or now is the winner of our discontent. And what is it you're going to do that's different? That's what I always ask myself. And sometimes it took me, I played Hamlet three times, right? You know, and I don't know if I ever got it right. I mean, finally I came to the conclusion, you don't play Hamlet, Hamlet plays you. Mm. Yeah. And these were these were different, uh, distinctly different stages of your life when you played him. It was all pretty much in the same three-year period. Yeah, it was okay. Early seventies. Yeah. So is is the key to pretty, is is the key personalizing it in some way? For sure, personalizing it, and also finding the humor. The humor is important. Right? The humor to me is the most. It's the, it's the way you get into somebody's that's it's the it's the fun. if you can laugh at somebody's witticism or even a platform i mean um you 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 begin to identify with that person mm. so i'm always looking i i look for the humor in Hamlet, and i and for and also you know even with the, the scottish king i mean trying to find the humor in that guy that's that's a real challenge <laughs> oh yeah it's interesting, though, if you can unlock, if you can find your footing in Shakespeare, then I think you have a leg up because yeah. I, I, he is the father of all drama. And there, there's a reason, yeah. even dramas that are made today, if people refer to them as Shakespearean, that's, right. <laughs> I mean, that's where it all starts. That's right. That's absolutely right. Well said. Mm-hmm. I'm in the process now of doing a one-man Hemingway, oh, which wow. I'm hoping to do. I did it in Chicago very successfully, and uh, we're looking for a theater in Washington D.C. and um, and also here in Los Angeles and New York and uh, and London. And so it's a one-man Hemingway piece uh, called Pamplona, and I'm very excited about that. Hmm. Is it, uh, who are you the writer? Who 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 wrote it? Jim McGrath, the writer that I met on a television series in my camera, and he's a very good writer, and he we worked on it for some time together. Um, and it really it, it, it's about his just having received the Nobel Prize, and he's been he's been given this assignment to write a, a piece for Life magazine on the two greatest matadors in the world, Antonio Donez. And Miguel de Miguel, and he's in a hotel room in Pamplona, he's all alone, and he's got writer's block. He can't write. Mm-hmm. He's just been, and we've just heard him receive the Nobel Prize. Just received, and he's he's got a block. And the only way he can unblock himself is to revisit the demons of his past. And the hotel walls become screened, and you see images of. Hadley and his wives and Scott Fitzgerald and and um, his mother and, and his father. I love doing it. So when you're doing a one act play <clears throat> where you essentially own the stage, yeah, do you consider your audience your acting partner? Yes. Very good. Yes. 
good. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, they, they are my confidants. Yeah, and that's true. You see, that starts with Shakespeare too. The aside, the monologue, Richard mm-hmm. Third, you know, taking the, the audience into your confidence. The audience becomes your compatriot. Yeah, and very well said. Very well thought out. I've enjoyed well, it. I have too. I got to tell you, it's it's such a deep honor to to speak to you, and and I just got to tell you, my mother also wants me to tell you that she loves you. (laughs) Thank you so much for your generosity. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you.